Welcome to the Life Changing Principles Podcast, where we take a new principle every week and explore how it changes our lives. I'm Leanne Hunt, ready to jump into today's principle. There is a secret sauce to motivation, three basic ingredients that are absolutely necessary in order for someone to be motivated in a clean and powerful way, not feeling like they're being compelled to do it or forced to do it from the outside. Those three ingredients are autonomy, competence, and relatedness. We're going to talk about those just for a minute so we can see why these ingredients to motivation are just as important as sun, soil, and water are to growing a plant. You got to have all three or it's not going to grow. Same with motivation. You've got to have autonomy, competence, and a relationship or connectedness, or you're not going to have good motivation in whoever it is you're trying to get something to do. Maybe it's your kids, maybe it's your students, maybe even at work, it's somebody that works for you. When my kids were little, we used to take Suzuki violin lessons, and the Suzuki method is a particular way of learning violin, and it often starts with kids as young as three years old. So these little tiny kids are learning how to play a difficult instrument. Well, how do they do that, and how do they keep them motivated? They do it by honoring the three basic ingredients of motivation, autonomy, competence, and connection. So first of all, for connection. They start by getting parents involved in the lessons. Parents don't just drop their kids off. They learn how to do the things with them. They learn the games with them so that when the kids come home to practice, it's not practice. It's really playing with their parents. It's playing games. Even if their parents don't know how to play an instrument, they know at least the basics of how these games go. And so it's a connection. It's fun for them to do. They also honor competence. They break violin playing down into the teeniest, tiniest little skills, and then they teach those one at a time. So the very first week that a kid comes in to learn to play violin, they don't even touch the violin. They pick up a stick and they learn how to pick it up and hold it in a particular way, which is the bow hold. And then that's all they do is hold that stick and twist it around and play different games with it and let go of the grip and get the grip again. And they learn how to do a bow hold. Then the next week they take that bow hold and they, they move that stick up and down and learn how to move their wrist in a relaxed way. And they, they basically bow on their shoulder. Then the next week they might pick up a real bow and they learn how to do it. And they'll do rhythms, Mississippi hot dog, and they learn how to do a rhythm with this stick or with the bow. And after a month of lessons, they still haven't even picked up a violin. And it seems like, oh my goodness, why am I paying for these lessons when they're going to take forever? They're taking so long. But they break it down into the tiniest steps. And so by the time they're a little bit further along, they are completely competent in the basics and they become great violin players. Going slow makes it go faster in the long run and the kids feel competent. They know how to handle a bow. They know how to do it without breaking something. They know how to begin to make music. And as they pick up the violin, then there's little pieces, tiny, tiny, tiny little steps, a piece at a time. The other thing that's cool about the Suzuki method is that it honors autonomy. It honors the kid and what they're ready to do. It's not about forcing hours of practice. It's about letting them choose games. It's about engaging them in the process. It's about meeting them where they are and what they're willing to do at the time. 
we know that in Suzuki, we're in this for the long haul. And so in the moment, we honor the autonomy of the kid by letting them have as much choice as possible within the time that we're playing the violin for that day or for that week. These needs are so foundational that they happen on a biological level. Just like a stress response can happen if you see something that makes you stressed out or fearful, an autonomy response can happen using those same biological circuits when your autonomy gets stomped on. It's such a fundamental need that there is a biological component to it. Let's take autonomy for example. Autonomy is feeling like you have a say in your own life. If we get rid of autonomy and have no say in our own lives, a couple different things can happen. One is we just become these like kind of lifeless automatic robots that do whatever we're told. And it's like, okay, I really don't have a choice in the matter. So whatever. And you just become uninterested in the world around you, uninterested in engaging with the life on your own terms. So that when you go off on your own, you really don't know what you want. You're just so used to complying. Another thing that can happen is that we feel this pressure and we rebel against it. We don't want to live within this pressure where we're not able to have a say in our own lives. And so we do just the opposite of whatever it is that we're asked to do. Even if the opposite isn't what we want, we're not seeking what we want and trying to be these independent, healthy, thriving individuals. We're reacting against the pressure. And so autonomy is so critical that if we feel it being squished, we'll push back against it sometimes. The second one is competence. What if we don't have competence? What if it just goes away and we don't have competence in our life? We're built for mastering our environment around us. If we don't feel competent, we stop interacting with the environment. We shy away from new things and new people. We don't have confidence that we can do something and so we avoid doing things and we find all kinds of crazy reasons not to. What might seem like a kid just being stubborn and not wanting to do something can be a lack of competence. They don't feel like they will be able to attack it and be able to master it and so they find excuses not to even try. If we do have competence, then we have a willingness to engage in our world. The last of the three is a sense of connection or relatedness to others. When we feel cared for and connected to other people, when we feel like we have a sense of belonging, when we feel like we matter to others, and also when we feel like we can contribute, then we're able to move forward in our lives and do other things. It's like without that connectedness or relationship, we're missing something so basic that we don't go out and explore and do other things in our lives. Without connection, we have no examples or models or other people to interact with and bounce off of and learn from. There's a theory called attachment theory in psychology that says if kids are securely attached to their parents, meaning if they have a good relationship with them, then it allows them a safe base to venture out from. So a little toddler, when they're securely attached to their parents, will start in their parents' lap in a new environment, and then they'll venture out and run back to mom, venture out further and run back to mom. Pretty soon they're off playing with the other kids or doing whatever they're doing without any concern for their safety or any concern for, or worry because they know they have a safe base, a safe relationship as an underlying thing to come back to. So having a good safe relationship isn't confining, it's freeing. It gives people a stable base to work from, to go out and explore and engage with their world. 
The other cool thing about these three essential ingredients to motivation is that they can both build up over time into a reservoir of that particular ingredient, or they can also be enhanced or thwarted right in the moment by what we do. So take connection, for example. We can build up a relation over time where we create memories and we spend time with people and we listen to them and and we live with them for all of this time building this good relationship. And if we have this foundation of a good relationship, then in the moment of, of conflict when we're trying to get our kids to do things, that relationship can carry a lot of weight for us. Kids are more willing to do stuff if we already have a pretty good relationship with them. But also in the moment, whenever we're in a moment of conflict trying to get our kids to do things or they're struggling with something, we can in real time actually enhance our connection with them. We can lower and soften our voice. We can kneel down on their level. We can use a soft touch that reminds them of our connection and relationship and increases in that moment connection and relationship. And it makes the moment go a little bit better. Incompetence, the second ingredient, it can also grow over time into a reservoir of competence. The more our kids believe that they can attack new things and learn them, the better and more willing they are to engage in their lives and actually try new things. And so we have to start at the beginning with tiny things that they are able to do. The best builder of competence over time is to match their ability with what we're asking them to do. And sure, we want them to stretch some, but not so much that they just can't do it and that they're continually failing at that thing and not making it so easy that it's continually too easy for them. Over time, they build competence and that reservoir of competence helps them in the moment where they're unsure about something. They might not know how to do this thing, but they feel confident they can do a lot of other things. And so they're more willing to risk and engage in their lives. In the moment, we can also build our kids' competence. We can encourage them. We can remind them of past things that they do well. We can acknowledge that it might be hard and it might not go well, but it's okay. They're a beginner at this particular thing. We can demonstrate things for them so that they have mastery, but then hand it over to them and let them drive. The last ingredient, which is autonomy, can also be built up into a reservoir over time and be used in the moment. Over time, the more we feel like we have a say in our lives, the more we feel grounded in who we are and that our opinions are heard in our family and in our other groups and with our friends, the more we get secure in the idea that here's something I want and I can go get it or that my opinions are validated and respected. The more that happens over time, the more powerful a kid feels in the moment of conflict or insecurity or something that happens in the moment. In the moment, if we're trying to get them to do something and we're kind of pushing on their autonomy, if they have a big reservoir of autonomy, they can say to themselves, this seems really important to her. I'm just going to go ahead and do it. If they don't have that big reservoir of autonomy, then every little thing is a conflict because they're fighting for a say in their lives. But if it's built up over time, they already have that sense of say in their lives. And it covers a lot of little tiny conflict moments when they have this big reservoir. However, in the moment, we can also support their autonomy. When we're asking kids to do something, we can acknowledge that they might not want to do it. Like honor the fact that you're asking them to do something and then it's rubbing against their autonomy. 
we can give them as much choice in the say as possible. That doesn't mean that we get rid of the limits and we just let them do whatever we want. What it does mean is that we allow them choices within the limits and the necessity of doing still what it is they need to do. They can maybe figure out how they want to do it. We can have some negotiation about when they do it, about where they do it, about what it looks like for them to do this thing that we need them to do. We can give them rationale so it's not just a power struggle between us and them so that they begin to make sense of why it is they need to do it, which then honors their autonomy in that moment. Even simple phrases like a kid saying, you can't make me, and us honoring that and saying, you're right, I can't make you. You're right, I can't. You're right, you get to choose. It doesn't release them from the consequences of whatever it is that they we need them to do, and there will be consequences if they don't, but it does give them in that very moment the reminder that, oh, yeah, she can't force me to do something. I get to choose. And it makes it more likely that they'll choose something that's going to be useful in the family. When my kids were really little, I taught a parenting class. And in that class, they had the coolest chart. It was called the mistaken goals of misbehavior. The chart had this really cool column that says, how are you reacting to your kids misbehavior right now? Are you feeling annoyed and irritated? Are you feeling challenged and threatened in a power struggle? Are you feeling hopeless? Like, what am I going to do with this kid? I give up. Those three different reactions are a response to three different unmet needs that this kid has and that their behavior is trying to fill. Even though this mistaken goal chart happened long before self-determination theory and the whole idea of these three essential ingredients to motivation, they really match up with the three secret sauce ingredients. They match up with relationship, with competence, and with autonomy. For example, when you feel annoyed and irritated, it's often because your kid is trying to get attention in some other way because they're not feeling connection. They're trying to say, notice me, involve me usefully. I want to be a part of things. I need your attention here. The chart then gives ideas about how to respond like, I care about you, but I'm going to spend time with you a little bit later or to say something once and then to actually act on it and not keep repeating things, but then to actually set up some special time and reconnect and give your kid this connection that he needs so that he's not craving it and misbehaving so that he can get that attention and connection. Another one they have was when we feel challenged or threatened or in a bit of a power struggle and they need autonomy. They're missing autonomy if that's what happens. What they're really trying to say is, let me help. Give me some choices. I want to be a part of this. I want to be an independent contributor. It doesn't feel like they want to contribute, but they do. They want to fit in and they want to be able to do something. Being firm and kind, acting, not talking, deciding what you're going to do, and letting routines be the boss, not you be the boss, allows them more autonomy. Give them choices. Give them a say in their life. When we see that what's underneath this misbehavior is that they're missing that need, then we can figure out ways to fill that need in ways that aren't irritating and frustrating for us. The last one in the mistaken goals of misbehavior is when we feel helpless, just like, I don't know what I'm going to do with this kid. I have no idea how to get him to move or to do whatever it is I need him to do. Often in this case, the kid has assumed a position of helplessness. He's saying, don't give up on me. Like, show me a small step. I'm not sure I'm competent here. I'm not sure I know how to master this environment. 
And so for us, we need to break down things into smaller steps to show some confidence and encouragement to make sure that we're not assuming that they really can't handle it. Changing our mindset to know that they can handle disappointment or frustration or whatever it is they're needing to do with this new task that they're tackling. If you're interested in the mistaken goals of misbehavior, you can find it on positivediscipline.com and take a look at the chart and, and dig into it. But really what's critical is that these three mistaken goals of misbehavior connect to the three ingredients for motivation. They make sense. If we want to have our kids to be motivated, if we want them to have good, clean motivation, then they need these three ingredients. Good, clean motivation requires autonomy, it requires competence, and it requires relationships. Thanks for being here and taking a little time out of your busy life for personal development. I applaud you for that. We take change one step at a time. You're already on your way. You're already enough. You've got this. Have a great week and we'll see you for the next principle.